0: If you've got your Bible, open up to the book of Exodus. We are in a new series. It's called Jesus in the Exodus. And so what we're going to do is look at the book of Exodus and how Exodus foreshadows the coming of Christ. And you can overlay a bunch of what Jesus did onto the Exodus account. And you see more clearly what was happening in that account, but you see more clearly the person of Christ also. So look at Exodus Chapter two. That's where we're going to be tonight. Uh, I want you to know that the Book of Exodus. I said this last week. I'll probably say it a bunch in this series. Uh, Exodus is an as a narrative is a meta narrative of the redemption story. It's a small picture of what so much of the rest of the Bible and Christianity is about. Um, and and in the Book of Exodus, you're going to see these themes. And I don't know if you are uh, if you took any any lit classes in college. Or uh, maybe we have some English majors in here. But when you look at literature, what you see is, is themes, and people will come up with themes. It's really, really difficult, though, for a book that was written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors in a very different, uh, in very different places, obviously in very different times. It's very hard for for a book like this to have congruent themes unless it is supernaturally, divinely inspired. And so when you see a theme in the Bible, it's pretty miraculous if that theme continues. Because you have folks that are super educated writing the Bible, like Paul, who would have been basically a seminary professor, or before that he would have been a lawyer or a professor at some Ivy League school. And you've got a guy like Amos, who was a shepherd, And when you put all that together, it's pretty wild to see the themes. But I want to give you, if you're a note taker, if you got one of those new fancy blue journals from the church, I just want to give you a couple of themes that you can look for, not just tonight, but as we continue this study. So here's the four themes. I'll list them out and then I'll go over them real quick. The first one is Egypt. The second one is the Israelites. The third one is crying out. And the fourth one is Moses. And so let's go with Egypt. Egypt as a theme is sometimes the place that we go. It's sometimes the place that we leave. Egypt isn't really good or bad. You contrast that with Babylon. Babylon is pretty much always bad in the Bible. But here's the takeaway Egypt is not home. When you see the theme of Egypt in the Bible, what you see is sometimes God takes people there, sometimes God takes people out of there. What he never does is let his people stay there. And you will have an Egypt in your life, you will have a place in a season that God takes you and you're thinking, okay, well, I guess I can get used to this. But then the Lord will make you very uncomfortable, like nauseatingly uncomfortable. Something will happen and all you want is to get out of that place, the very place you know he brought you. That's in Egypt. We'll see that theme throughout the rest of the Bible. Israelites. Israelites are a literal group of people But Israel is also a metaphor where you will see yourself. As we get into the book of Exodus, what we'll see is we'll find ourselves getting frustrated with the Israelites. We're like, are you serious? God shows up. He makes Moses glow. He comes off the mountain. He's got pieces of stone that he wrote with his own hands and gave to a man the ten laws of God. And you people are worshiping a golden calf. And you'll get mad at the people of Israel. And then you'll go home and you'll look at something on your computer you shouldn't. Or you'll get drunk. Or you'll talk bad about somebody. And you'll be like, I'm them. If you're honest, at least. You'll be like, I'm them. I just had this worship moment. I just had this time where God showed up. And then I just left him. And so the Israelites, they are a people ultimately... They're the ones who would crush the serpent's head. The seed, the seed of God, would come through Israel to crush the serpent's head. Also, the third thing, and this is the one we're going to look at tonight, is the idea of crying out. The idea of crying out is. All through the Bible. If you've ever read the 150 Psalms, you hear this idea of I called out to God. I pant for you like the deer pants for water. I long for you. Oh God, I'm thirsty in a dry and weary land. I need you. I mean, the ideas just ebb and flow all through the Psalms and all through the Bibles. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He weeps and weeps and weeps that God would show up. Ezekiel does this. Isaiah does this. Uh, One of the the verses we'll look at tonight is Jeremiah 33.3, where where God tells Jeremiah, call to me and I will show you great and mighty things which you did not know. That was like my study verse in college when I didn't study. Um, Anyway, keep going. Okay, so there is this idea of crying out all through the scriptures. When God especially takes you to an Egypt, a place you knew he took you, But now you know you can't live there any longer. The theme of crying out begins to show up over and over again. That's where we're gonna go tonight. Now, lastly, the fourth theme, and you're like, how can a person be a theme? I promise you, the person of Moses is a theme in the Bible. And tonight, he's gonna enter the picture in a little basket thatched to a tar floating down the Nile River. And Moses, the theme of Moses He is a leader. He is a priest. He was going to expand the family of God. He was going to lead the people. He's going to bring the word of God. He's going to crush a serpent's head, which is Egypt. And he's going to be synonymous with the Torah. He is a foreshadowing of Jesus. When Jesus is transfigured and he is up on the mountain and two people appear to Jesus Moses is one of them, Moses and Elijah. It's so startling that Peter's like, this is a big deal. We should build, like, three houses. Like, Jesus, you'll get a house. And, yeah, Moses definitely gets a house. And Elijah, if we don't build one for him, he'll probably call something down from heaven and cook us. So, like, we're definitely going to build three houses. And then a cloud comes over the mountain. The voice of God comes down. And what does God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The cloud goes away, and only one person is left, and it's Jesus. But Moses is known as the one through whom God gave the instructions on how to walk with him. Moses is a priest. He's a leader. He does all kinds of things that foreshadow Christ, and this theme is all throughout the Bible. So when you read Moses in the New Testament... No longer read it as just a person. Read him as a person who is an idea that God was painting way before Jesus ever got there. Now, those are the four themes that I want to introduce you to. I also wanna give you just a little cheat sheet on the book of Exodus itself. Exodus is built into two main parts with one chapter in the middle. So chapters one all the way through chapter 18, are the Exodus. So if you're a note taker, if you're just trying to break this book down, and by the way, this is really cool. Instead of looking and being like, okay, we're in chapter one, we're gonna start in verse 15, and we're gonna go through two to the the end of that chapter, which is verse 25. Like that can just get exhausting when you're reading your Bible. You're like, I want you to see the big picture because this is how it was written. In the scroll that it was written on, it was written as a big-picture narrative. And chapters, what is now chapters 1 through 18, which was not when it was written. The first movement we have divided is chapters 1 through 18. That's the Exodus. We are coming out of Egypt. We are no longer supposed to be in this place, and God is bringing us out. Chapter 19 stands stark in the middle of the book. Chapter 19 is Sinai. Chapter 20, you're probably most famous with or most familiar with because it's the most famous. That's the giving of the Ten Commandments. But it's chapter 19 where they get to the mountain of God. And that's where God begins to meet them. Then chapters 20 through 40 is the next big movement of the book. It takes you all the way through from Sinai through the 40 years of wandering. And in that, you got a lot of stories. You get... You get spies, you get giant grapes, you get water that comes out of rocks, you get all kinds of stuff. It's like the hocus pocus, real deal, awesome. And I can't wait to tell you one of the stories when we get there about water from rocks, but that's later. So here we go. Let's look tonight. Exodus chapter one, starting in verse 15. We're going to see that when we call out to God, before we call out to God, we need a situation to be impossible. So look at verse chapter one, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes in. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. When Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So, what we have here is an impossible situation. We have this situation where Pharaoh is saying, I'm going to squash all the people of, of Israel. They're getting too big. They're too numerous. And so what does he do? He says, I want you to kill him. What do the midwives do? The midwives, I love this. They're like, these women are strong. I'm telling you. Like I left just a minute to get some hot water and I came back and boop, had a baby. She's cooking. I don't know what's happening. Like it was too fast. And they're not like the Egyptian women. Those women take like at least half a day to get back to normal. But these Hebrew women, they are tough. And so what does Pharaoh do? He's like, well, throw them into the Nile. And and he just kind of like, that's the end of it. But God, I want you to see this. There's another little sub theme here. God always leaves a remnant. If you've ever thought you're the only one God always leaves a remnant. The Israelites started to think we're the only ones and, and Egypt is coming down on us and we're never gonna live, we're never gonna survive. And what does God do? He raises up these midwives and he starts to put in their heart, not, listen to this, it wasn't that they loved babies so much they wouldn't kill them. It says the reason they wouldn't kill the babies is because they feared God Most. He raises up these midwives in the midst of an impossible situation who fear God more than Pharaoh. And these midwives who fear God more than Pharaoh then respect the lives of these little babies. And you you really see kind of a Holocaust moment here where people would hide the Jews and they would lie and say, there's no Jews here. You really see this moment of like, well, wait a minute, is it okay to lie? I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, I know Do Not Lie is in the top 10, and when we get to the top 10, we can talk about that a little more, but lying to cover yourself so that you don't get in trouble for something you did that you know you should get in trouble for because it was sinful and it was bad, yes, that is always wrong. Lying to protect a life from an evil person, it's not the same kind of thing. So there's no like punishment from God for these women hiding these babies. But God always raises up a remnant. If you've ever felt like you're the last one, you're not. Elijah, brief side note, has this incredible moment with God. He kills these 450 prophets of Baal and then another 400 prophets um, who are walking uh, in the ways against God. And it's just this big day. He outruns a chariot, basically does a full marathon of running. And, uh, and then he, he finds out that Jezebel wants to kill him, so he runs and he hides. We did a whole message on this a little while ago. When he gets away and he finally runs for 40 days through the power of God, he gets to, again, the mountain of God, which is very interesting. He runs to the same mountain that Moses is going to be at in Exodus 19 because God always shows up there. And so when he gets to that mountain, he runs and he finds God. And God says, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm the only one. And God, without wasting a breath or a word, says, There's 7,000 more like you, Elijah. So look, it's okay to feel alone. It's okay to feel like, man, am I the only one that's trying to do the right thing? We have no idea if all these other midwives talk to each other. This is two midwives, but apparently there were multiple midwives that God was raising up. You stay faithful and somebody else will also be faithful god raises up a remnant now but the plans start to get desperate at this point they the, the pharaoh is just going to crack down more and more and more on the people he's not going to let up he's going to continue to say kill these babies And so the people are getting pinned in. They have to work all day long. They have to make the brick to make the pyramids, right? Like they have to make the brick and they have to get the mud and they have to get the the wheat and they have to get all the stuff to make the brick and then they have to have the brick and then they have to move the brick and then they have to build the building and they get no rest and they're not getting like vacation. They lost their summer break a long time ago. There was no Christmas break. Like they were just working nonstop They had taskmasters working them. If they stopped working, they would be killed. Now the babies are supposed to be killed. They have gone from a decent situation to a bad situation to a horrific situation. And we still don't see any mention of God yet in the book. And then, what's called chapter 2 in our Bibles, chapter 2, verse 1 And I say that because originally there wasn't a chapter two, it was just one big section written. Now a man from the house of Levi went and he took as his wife a Levite woman and the woman conceived and she bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and she placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a, dis- at a distance to know what would be done to him. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and she went to, she went to her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. Do you know that's uh, the first time crying is mentioned in the Bible? It's this little boy who's floating down the river, who's been hidden for three months. Maybe like she was like, this kid cries a lot. We can only hide him for three months. I don't know what the story is with Moses, but when he floats down, apparently there was a lid and they removed the lid. And here's this crying little boy and the daughter of the man who wants them all dead is who finds this baby. And so this baby comes into the presence of this woman and the story gets more and more rich. It says, when she opened it, I'm in verse six there, when she opened it, behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, remember, the story has gotten to a really bad place. The people are working all the time. They're being worked to death. The children are supposed to be killed. We need somebody to come and save the day. This little baby floats down, lands at the lap of the daughter of the man who wants everyone dead. What happens? The daughter of the man who wants everyone dead says, oh, Yes, let's get somebody to nurse this child. His own mom gets to spend a couple of more years with him. She loves him. She turns him back over to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter then begins to raise this little boy whose name means I will draw you out of the water. Now tell me, folks, That is incredible foreshadowing. That is the name that Pharaoh's daughter gave this little boy, the little boy who in just a few chapters is going to help draw the people out of the water as they cross the Red Sea. She pulls him out of the water, says, I'm going to call you Moses because you get drawn out of the water and he's the one that's going to draw everybody out of the water. Now tell me that God is not working a plan here. He's got a plan and he's working the plan and he's setting it up Meanwhile, though, the people are still in Egypt and they desperately need to get out. And so now we fast forward, as in a lot of biblical accounts, and what we see now is uh, Moses, who is now an adult, a grown up, at least a teenager at this point, he now looks like an Egyptian. He wears Egyptian clothing. He probably has the Egyptian makeup on his eyes. He speaks the Egyptian language. He can read the hieroglyphics. He can do all the stuff. And he probably still knows Hebrew because he's one of them. And he knows who his biological mother is. I'm sure they had some private conversations about all that. He knows where he comes from. He knows he doesn't look Egyptian, but he dresses Egyptian. And so this is the next scene. This is the rise of Moses, our deliverer. And this is the heart of justice that God needs to free his people. So look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian being beaten, a Hebrew, one of his people, and he looked his This way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came, and they drew water, and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds, came and drove them away but Moses stood up and he saved them and he watered their flocks and when they came home to their father Ruel he said how is it that you have come home so soon today and they said an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock and he said to his daughters then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughters the Just a little side note there. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershon, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Okay, this is how old, old literature was written, like, um, old Near Eastern literature. Like we have Moses and he grows up and he kills a man and then he gets in an argument with another man and then he like flees and then he runs off a whole bunch of shepherds and then the guy's like, do you want her? And he's like, sure. And they get married and then the next verse they have a kid. Like that's kind of how it's written. But what's in here is something very Hebrew, very interesting. It's the number three. He kills an Egyptian for being unjust. He breaks up a fight between two Hebrews because it is unjust. He runs off a bunch of shepherds who are being unjust. Moses is just, just, just. Now in the book of Isaiah, you have God on his throne And you have the seraphim and the angels and the whole chorus singing, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, when something is three times the same thing, it can't be that anymore. It is at its maximum. What we're seeing in the book of Isaiah is that God can be no more holy than he is. He's the holiest. He's holy, holy, holy. What we're seeing in this little bit of Exodus is that the people are being treated unjustly and God has sent in a man who is just, just, just. This man can see through wrongs all day long. He's not partial to the Hebrews. He's not partial to the Egyptians. He's not partial to the Midians. He's partial to what is true and right. And so God begins to bring up this man, this deliverer. That's a little side note and hopefully a teaching moment for you because it's real easy to get a tribe and protect that tribe at all costs. That tribe, Moses was all about the tribe of justice. Now, he's not converted yet. Wait till he gets converted. He's just gonna be unleashed. Like, you want justice? I'll bring it to you, Pharaoh, and I'll bring it to you from the mouth of God. And it's gonna be like lights out. Bye, Pharaoh, we're on the way. It's gonna be incredible. And we're gonna hit the 10 plagues all in one week, and it's gonna be amazing. And so, what we have here is this incredible, repeated three times, not partial to the Egyptians, not partial to the Hebrews, not partial to the Midians. What we have is God setting up and saying, my people need justice. I think a teaching moment here is, do you need justice anywhere in your life? If you need justice to show up in your life, this is like the book for you. If you just need a favor, it's probably like a good one to like put in the back pocket because one day you will need justice. But if you need justice, this is is the book for you. And so we see all this terrible stuff that's been going on. And in the midst of it, God is beginning to raise up a man who's going to set all things right by the hand and power of God. Now, let's look at the end of chapter 2. Look at verses 23, 24, and 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Is there any way to put all those verses together up on the screen, 23, 24, and 25? There's not a way to do that. Okay, we don't want to do that. I kind of want to show you, though. Um, let's go to, uh, look at verse, well, I'll just show you in your Bibles. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. God's going to give a five-fold response, and you're going to to underline this. Their cry for rescue from slavery, and I promise we're all going somewhere with this. This isn't just a really long reading of a whole bunch of verses. I promise, just stick with me, and the plane's going to land, and it's going to be a good moment. So here's the plan. God, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So number one. The first of God's response, it came up to God. Number two, God heard their groaning. Number three, God remembers. And that remembers not like he forgot, it's an active remembering. It's an active verb. He's like, oh, it is time to respond because I know what I told them I would do. So God remembers with action his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God sees the people. Now you can't see something. The reason that word is, the word see is in there is not to give this picture of God like way out in outer space with like binoculars. It's this sign of God coming down in the middle of them to where he can see them. He's like in their midst looking at their hurt and their pain and their sorrow and their slavery and their bondage. Now we have this picture of God drawing really, really close. So he remembers and he visits the people and God knew. And it's very interesting in the ESV, the last word is that God knew because now what we see is that God knows exactly the heart of anguish that they're in. That word knew is actually a word associated with sex between two people in the Bible. Adam knew Eve and they conceived and bore a son. The idea here Is that God goes from up here? I hear their prayers. They're crying out to me. I remember what I said. I now see them. I know what's going on in their lives. This is worded to go from God being way up here to God being right beside the one who's in trouble. It's poetically written. From the very beginning, we don't hear about God, and God seems far off and forgetting, and then all of a sudden, there's this guy who's raised up, and then the very end, after we see Moses raised up to be poised to meet God at the burning bush in chapter three next week, what we see is that God is drawing closer and closer and closer, but the people have no idea The people, some of those folks could have been ready to give in and throw throw in the towel right at that moment as God is drawing closer and closer and closer and he is about to save the day through this guy Moses. And they're, they're like... Moses is going to be a hero throughout the rest of this book, but this is called Jesus in the Exodus, and the writer of Hebrews starts off his book, and he says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people hold Moses up as high as you can hold a person, and the writer of Hebrews, so that you are not confused that Moses is just as good as Jesus or just like a little bit lower. The writer of the book of Hebrews doesn't even say his name. He says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Moses was an incredible leader. He delivered people out of slavery. He got them through the Red Sea. He delivered them the word, and it was wonderful, and he's amazing. But he also fails time and time again. The book of Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to us by the, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And then he goes through and he gives this whole list of accolades of Jesus and how he is the great and better Moses. He is the great and better Abraham. He is the great and better David. He's the one who always sees what's going on with you. And the writer of Hebrews starts chapter 2, verse 1, by saying, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 2006 was like the worst year, I think, of my, uh, of, of my life. I think 2006, I was probably, there were probably some moments where I was a little bit Like, life would be better if I wasn't here or, you know, this life is really, really hard. I don't like it. 2006 was a pretty terrible year. And as 2006 went on, it was really kind of 2005 and 2006. As that went on, um, I just, I was at this place that I didn't want to be. It was definitely an Egypt kind of place. Um, My lovely, I'm looking at Heather because she's just sweet and faithful and she loves the Lord and she loved me um, through all of that. But it was just a really, really bad year. And as 2006 began to kind of close, I just thought God was as far away as he could be. And I remember I began to cry out because I was familiar with stories like Exodus chapter two, the end of it. And I had heard people talk about postures of prayer, and I began to cry out, and I would get on my knees at times and cry out. I would drive in my car, and literal tears would fall down my face as I drove home from work. I would cry out over and over again, and I remember being on, uh, on this one road, coming up to a major intersection. I knew I was only a couple of miles from the house, and I just remember crying out, God, are you ever, ever, ever going to show up? And I remember just like that, you know that cry, like I don't know if you've cried in a while, but that kind of crying that you do that when you're done, you're like, I just don't even have any emotions left to go. There's no more tears left to cry. And you just kind of feel like empty and like really tired and you just kind of want to fall asleep. I don't really remember a whole lot of praying after that night. I just know it was like, I've cried out all I can cry. I don't know if he's going to show up. Well, it wasn't long after that that I ended up being at a great church, and I was there for a long time as a church before this church. I told you some of that last week, and I've said it before. but. I remember being at that church, and then I got to start going on mission trips at that church and started meeting some incredible people, and Heather and I met incredible folks all over the world. Uh, It was just, it it was a really good, sweet season. It was like 13 years of that season, and multiple times I looked back, and I was like, man, this is amazing, God. You were listening that whole time I was praying. You were preparing this. You were opening the doors. I'm so glad that you showed up, and Anyway, it was just a it was a really sweet time. And on those mission trips, I began to see something. This is where, like, I hope the, the analogy doesn't just fall apart. I began to see something that I was like, man, those are really cool. I saw Land Cruisers for the first time, uh, like, all over Africa and in, like, and like uh, South America. And I was like, what car is that? That thing's amazing. And, like, they just kept going. They would just ride forever out in the African bush. I was like, like, we get to pick these safari cars at the end of a mission trip. And they were like, which one do you want? And I was like, I want that Toyota Land Cruiser. That's what I want to ride in. And, like... We would just go, we'd like pull other people out of the mud and stuff, like save them from elephants. Not really, but but anyway, I just, those cars were so cool. And when I got home from this first one of those mission trips, I looked at those cars and I was like, $80,000. Wow, that's a lot of money for a car. I will never have a Land Cruiser. Let's go back to Africa so I can ride in one for a minute. And so we went, we had all these great trips. It was in that sweet season of God delivering me and uh, and then my mom my mom bought one of those cars she bought the Lexus version of the Land Cruiser it's got the L on it because those are the ones that sell more in the U S um, they 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 charge more for them and more moms buy them and, uh, and so anyway she bought this car and I was like mom you bought a Land Cruiser and she said I bought a Lexus and I was like okay but if you open the door I bet it says Toyota on the inside and it did and I was like see it's a Land Cruiser <laughs> she was like I don't want to talk to you about it anymore uh, and so. I joked with her for years. I was like, hey, if you ever want to sell it, you let me know. Well, I think it was 2017. I can't remember. My mom said, hey, I think I'm going to sell that car. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah, of course I'm interested. And I went, to, uh, I went and I sold my, my Toyota Tacoma, and they gave me, like, the perfect amount of money. And I just literally handed the check to her. That's how much she was asking for it. And uh, I was like, I have a Land Cruiser paid for I was like, who is living the dream now? And uh, anyway, I was driving it around for a little while, and one day it dawned on me. Now, this is, this is where I hope this analogy just doesn't to- fall totally apart. The problem when you use materialistic things in analogy is they can get taken, like, way out of context. Um, this is not about material things. This is just kind of a sweet little story. One day I was like, wait. What was this? I was looking through like the manual because sometimes you want to look, you just want to look through it. They're cool. And so, thank you, Banks. Yeah, you just want to look through the manual. So I was like looking through the owner's manual and I was like, wait, this is a 2006. That was before I even knew about these cars. Wait. That was when I was in like the worst year of my whole life. Wait. Lord. I'm just going to take this as a sweet little moment of you knew where you would take me one day. You knew all those mission trips and all those people. You knew I would get to ride in those cool cars in other countries. And you knew that one day you would get me one of these cars from the worst year of my life. Just kind of showing me in the worst year of your life, Thomas, I had all this other stuff laid out for you. And by other stuff, I don't mean material things. I just mean it was a sweet little moment of I got this, this car years and years later, like 11 years after it was made. Well, I wasn't even thinking what year it was made. But the year it was made, somebody in Japan was putting that thing together, knowing that it was going to be sold from one mom to another for a couple of years, <laughs> not knowing where the thing would end up. And there was some guy crying out to God, please just show up. Please just show up before I throw in the towel. And the Lord heard those cries. And years later, 11 years later, I'd be driving in that thing that was made in the worst year that I could imagine. The year that I was calling out to God the most. It was just like this sweet little gift. I mean, the car could have been made in 2005. It could have been made in 2007. I could never even have the car. All that would be fine. But it was just this sweet little moment of the Lord saying, Thomas, if you only knew the things I knew. In, in Genesis 49, and I'm going to land the plane with this. I've gone longer than I want to. I didn't mean to. I appreciate you being gracious. In Genesis 49, Heather was talking to me about this last night. Jacob blesses all his sons before they die. One of the sons he blesses is Judah. And Judah gets the weirdest blessing about a robe being dipped in blood and having a scepter and some other stuff. The whole fruit of Judah's life wouldn't be realized until hundreds and hundreds of years later on the island of Patmos when John would write the book of the Revelation when he saw God the Father and he saw Jesus Christ and he saw his return. And he writes in Revelation 19 about this man written all the way back in Genesis 49 and how he was a foreshadowing of Christ. What I'm saying is, don't, you cannot give up when you call out to God just because you don't see him making sense right now. All through the Bible, we see people calling out to God. And all through the Bible, when people call out to God, especially because of injustice, The Lord will show up. All the people, and I'm thinking of one of my good friends in particular, all the people that I know that have walked away from the faith, walked away because God didn't show up in their time frame. And he didn't show up in their understanding of things. Moses was wonderful, but he wasn't Christ. The deliverance is amazing, but I guarantee you the people, as we see them in the rest of this book, long to see and know what you know. We have a Jesus who loves us, who came to earth, who bore our sins, who when life doesn't make sense is nearer to us than the Lord was to them through the Holy Spirit. And so my hope for you is that you will cling to verses 23, 24, and 25 of Exodus 2 and that you will call out to God and that you will understand the Lord may very well be right next to doing a major work. You just won't know it until that moment happens. They had no idea That God was drawing near, that God was raising a Moses, that they were about to be set free. So, my friends, it is not up to us to call God on time. It is up to us to dig our heels in and be faithful. And I'll wrap up with this as the band comes up. Andrew Peterson has a song called Always Good. And he says, Do you remember how Mary was grieving? How you wept when she when she fell at your feet? If it's true that you know what I'm feeling, could it be that you're weeping with me? Arise, O Lord, and save me. There's nowhere else to go. You're always good, always good. Somehow this sorrow is shaping my heart like it should. And you're always good. You're always good. Well, it's so hard to know what you're doing. Why won't you tell it all plain? But you did say to Peter on the third day, I'm coming back, and he missed it again and again. So maybe the answer surrounds us, but we don't have the eyes to see that you're always good. You're always good. This heartache is moving me closer than joy ever could, and you're always good. My God, my God, be near me. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to hold on to hope, to cling to you, to call out to you, those people had Moses, but we have Jesus. Lord, you were silently moving in to save the day. Father, I ask that you would help us to call out to you if we're in an Egypt and it's time to move on. And Lord, that we would not give up just because you don't meet our time frame. And I thank you, Lord, that you weep with us just like you did with Mary and Martha. And Lord, you are always good, even when we don't see you moving. We trust that you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray, Father, amen.